Hello again, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and today we'll be talking about the dreadful 44-23 loss San Francisco had at the hands of the Chiefs, why that loss was on the defense, penalties killing this team again, Jimmy didn't help in some instances, and we'll look ahead to a very important matchup this week at the Rams in our plus section We'll talk about uh, a few interesting games in the NFL. We'll talk about playoff standings, where the Niners sit, the House of the Dragon finale, an announcement a few days ago of a new Star Wars movie coming out, and we'll conclude, like always, making our Week 8 NFL picks. So let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! And there's a lot to talk about. Unfortunately, not much of it is good. Let's start with the stats overall. Kansas City outgained the 49ers 529 to 444. Turnovers, three for San Francisco, two for Kansas City. First downs, San Francisco edged that out 25 to 24. In time of possession, interestingly enough, the 49ers had a plus seven minutes and 30 seconds advantage in time of possession. That's really only because the Chiefs were scoring fast and furiously what felt like all game. Quarterback-wise, Jimmy was a respectable 25 of, more than respectable, 25 of 37, 303 yards, two touchdowns, an interception, and a fumble. He was sacked at five times and under pressure all day. Mahomes, 25 of 34, 423 yards, three touchdowns, one interception, was sacked only once. We'll get into that. Running the ball, Jeff Wilson went seven for 54 yards, Christian McCaffrey making his 49er debut, Went eight rushes for 38 yards as a team, 21 for 101, a shade under five yards a carry for the Chiefs. Uh, Pacheco, the rookie out of Rutgers, went eight for 43. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, six for 32 and a touchdown. And Nicole Hardman um, went two for 28 and two touchdowns on two jet sweeps as a team. 21 rushes for 112 yards, which is a shade over five yards a carry. Receiving, Kittle, Went 6 for 98 and a touchdown. Brandon Ayuk, 7 for 82. Ray Ray McLeod, 4 for 65 and a touchdown. Most of his catches and yardage came in garbage time, although his touchdown did come in the uh, first half. And Debo Samuel went 5 catches for 42 yards. For the Chiefs, Juju Smith-Schuster, 7 receptions, 124 yards and a touchdown. Um, Scantling went 3 for 111. Travis Kelsey, 6 for 98. And Nicole Hardman, again, four for 32 in a touchdown, which was almost looked like a jet sweep again, but it was a push pass from a home for a touchdown. Grades per pro football focus, take it for what it's worth, the top five highest graded 49ers, Aaron Banks on the offensive line, Ray Ray McLeod, Trent Williams at tackle, George Kittle, and Jake Brendel at center. So three of the five highest graded players were offensive linemen, yet Jimmy Garoppolo was under pressure and duress most of the game, so that's interesting. On defense, the five highest graded, Talanoa Hufunga, who wound up getting the interception um, on Patrick Mahomes in the first quarter, linebacker Dre Greenlaw, Nick Bosa, Drake Jackson at defensive end, and Tervarius Moore at safety only had, I think, under, under 10 snaps. All right, so let's make no mistake here. The defense lost this game. The defense stopped Kansas City twice, in the game when it mattered, not garbage time when they took out Mahomes and brought Chad Henney in, but they stopped them twice. Once was an interception, which was fantastic, led to points. The other was a punt, and that wound up being a muffed punt 
which the 49ers did not cash in on inside the 10-yard line of Kansas City. We'll get into that. Overall, they allowed six touchdown drives. No field goal drives, which I guess is a a good thing because that just sort of added to the blowout. But all of their offensive drives, six, uh, were, were six touchdowns. So now where does this defense stand? I said a couple weeks ago, like, let's slow our roll on how good this defense is for a couple reasons. One, they've gotten progressively more banged up leading into this game. Now, they did get some people back. Bosa came back. Jimmy Ward came back. Um, so they they did get some uh, some reinforcements. But at the same time, they have not played offensive world beaters. And I think that's actually the phrase that I used. They played Seattle, who's ranked 12th offensively, and that's the highest ranked team. Now, maybe that shutout, it was actually a shutout of the, of the Seahawks, but the Seahawks wound up returning, I think it was a pump block for a touchdown. Seattle's ranked 12th offensively. They've gotten better, and Geno Smith has gotten more efficient. Kudos to him as the year has gone on at quarterback. But the other five teams, the Broncos ranked 23rd in total offense. The Rams, 26. Atlanta, 27. Chicago, 28. Carolina, dead last at 32. Is this a top three defense? You can look at the statistics and and make a case for it. I think they are actually number three. Still number two against the run, and I think they dropped to about um, 10th or so against the pass. But... To me, it's not a top three defense. They're still banged up. They're still missing Eric Armstead and Javon Kinlaw at defensive tackle. They're missing Emmanuel Mosley. They do need a second corner. Diamador Lenore, second-year player out of Oregon, has gotten the star and, and replaced Mosley last game. Um, he's he's still young. Um, he, had, he was better suited as a nickel. That's why he won that position. Um, I would say this is going to ultimately shake out to be a top 10 defense. Now, they're not playing an offense like the Chiefs the rest of the way. They have the Rams this week coming out of the bye. They see the Chargers. That's a it's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of team. You don't know what you're going to get. The Bucks are not doing too well so far, but that doesn't mean that they can't get it together because they do have weapons on offense. Miami can be offensively explosive. They get the Seahawks again. They get the Cardinals twice. Um, but they, they're not the Bills, they're not the Chiefs, they're not the Eagles. So I can see them remaining a top 10 defense, and they're going to have good games, and they're going to have some games that they're going to look lost. I mean, Atlanta was not a great offense. Yes, the defense only let up three touchdowns a week ago, but they ran the ball sent down San Francisco's throats, whether that was a lack of adjustments, a lack of interior starting players. Bosa, Kinlaw, and Armstead all missed that game. But I don't think this this team was not as good defensively as people want to say. They were throwing around terms like a historic defense. Now, again, it makes for great talk radio, podcasts, YouTube, sports, whatever. But they are not. They were not, and they are not. Even when they become fully healthy, as good a defense as the as the statistics were trying to tell people they are. And if anything, Kansas City gave the blueprint on how to neutralize some of San Francisco's pressure where you can attack them. And now granted, not every team, no team is going to have Andy Reid drawing up the plays, calling the plays, Patrick Mahomes throwing the ball, Travis Kelsey at tight end. The running backs you don't have to worry about so much, but they do have an assortment of of receivers, whether it's a Juju Smith-Schuster, who's a possession receiver, someone like Marquez Valdez-Scantling that can stretch the field. Hardman can do a little bit of both. They have weapons, and they have the most important position, quarterback, the best player in the league, or one of the two best players, along with Josh Allen, 
leading the attack. How bad was this performance? It was historically bad. San Francisco let up 9.1 yards per play. And yes, I understand a lot of the big chunk plays, the 30-plus yard screen pass on a third and 20, the 57-yard bomb to Valdez Scantling getting behind Charvarius Ward on a third and 12, up that um, yards per play average. But 9.1 yards per play is... they. Basically, mathematically, the Chiefs almost got a first down every time they hiked the ball. That's obviously not going to win you games. That's wildly that's wildly unacceptable for any defense. Even the worst defense in the league shouldn't be giving that up. Yet a very yet let alone a very proud defense in that one one that is still currently ranked in the top five and it'll probably to me feels like a top ten defense in terms of how they're actually going to perform. There was only one sack um, against the Chiefs. That was Nick Bosa. Um, they could not get consistent pressure on Mahomes. This was a vastly different game than the Super Bowl in 2019. The Niners were getting after Mahomes. They caused fumbles, multiple sacks, multiple interceptions. They rattled Mahomes for three and a half quarters, and then he turned into Superman the last half quarter, and they wound up putting you know 21 points up on the board to win the Super Bowl. But what they did, what Andy Reid... And Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator, did was they used San Francisco's aggressiveness on the defensive line against them. They know that they play a wide nine defense, which means that the defensive line is spread out wider than usual. The defensive ends are outside the tackle or even the tight ends sometimes. And it's pin your ears back and get after the quarterback. Even if it's a run play, this is a downhill attacking defense. And those jet sweeps that Mecole Hardman ran, whether it was an actual handoff or a push pass, they ran it at Bosa. They took they essentially didn't even block Bosa sometimes and took him completely out of the play and just worried about blocking linebackers and corners downfield. This is similar to the scheme that the Eagles ran against the Cowboys on a Monday night game a few weeks ago where they they ran at Micah Parsons, um, who was NFL Defensive Rookie of the Year last year. They neutralized him when they ran the read option. They ran at him. They would not blo block him and bootleg Jalen Hurts away from him. They did not let Micah Parsons wreck the game. The Chiefs did not let Bosa wreck the game. He had a very good chance to stem the tide and turn the tide of the game when he did get his one sack of Mahomes in the third quarter. Um after San Francisco made it 28 to 23, but the Niners couldn't do anything with it. And two plays later, they give up a 57 yard bomb to Marquez Valdez, you know, Scantling. So the, the methodology or the philosophy of they really didn't rush more than four much this game. And they, they thought that they can get to get to Mahomes um, with their front four and drop seven against all those weapons that they have. Neither worked. Seven couldn't cover the three, four, five that they had in coverage because there was many coverage breakdowns and receivers running wide open, and they couldn't get there with four. If San Francisco plays an offense where that formula doesn't work and they're down Emmanuel Mosley, so playing man up um, across the board to send five or six to get some pressure, it's going to be a pick-your-poison negatively for San Francisco. They play their best when their defensive linemen can dictate the pace of the game. They could not do that at all. They stuck with them for three quarters. Again, it was 28-23, beginning of the fourth, and then it just fell apart. Uh, I mentioned the screen pass to Jarek McKinnon, so that was 
uh, earlier on in the game. I believe it was it was either the second or, or third quarter. But when you get a team in third and 20, I think it was at their own, you know, 40 or 38 yard line. You want to at least hold him to a field goal. That would have been a 55-yard field goal for Harrison Bucker, well well within his range. It's more or less a coin flip, a 50-50 proposition. But Andy Reid, again, calls a, bla- a great call, or maybe it was Eric Bieniemy screen pass Nick Bosa's side. The, the blocking was great because they didn't have to worry about Bosa at all because he got up the field so quickly. And that essentially kind of, in a way, took took the air out of the offense, but none more so than when San Francisco marches down the field, down 28-16, to 16, get a touchdown um, to make it 28-23. to 23. They get a sack on Mahomes. They make it third and 11. Juju just runs, Juju Smith-Schuster just runs by Charvarius Ward for a 44-yard gain, and there's, you know, a touchdown. A touchdown's happened after each one of those two plays, a screen pass, and the bomb to Valdez Scantling. Those are explosive plays, folks, and that's what San Francisco lacks. If you want to say that an explosive play is, you know, a handoff to Debo or an end around or a bubble screen for, excuse me, 10 to 15 yards, if that's an explosive play for the 49ers, then we need to redefine what an explosive play is in general and for this team. Anyone watching San Francisco or a lot of their games knows that you rarely see a bomb like the one that was thrown to Valdez Scantling. Even Juju Smith-Schuster in the fourth quarter had a 37 or 30-plus yard reception wide open in the middle of the field. Nobody around him. San Francisco, for as much talent as they have, seems to have to work for any of their big or bigger plays. The yards they get on the ground. It seems like they get more... They, there's more offensive openings with them running the ball than passing the ball. Everything is predicated, I've said this many weeks, yards after the catch, quick throws, slants, slip screens, bubble screens, medium ins, uh, even to Kittle, and get the ball in your playmaker's hands on the move and let them pick up yards after the catch. Where a team like Kansas City can do that, most of the yards come before the catch because the ball is in the air so far from Mahomes. Whether it's even 20, 25 yards in the air, it's caught. And of course, Chiefs receivers can pick up more. But San Francisco is essentially a true West Coast offense where it's a quick and short passing game and you, and you hope that your playmakers can make something out of that. Generally, they do that. But when you're playing against a team like the Chiefs that is as explosive as they are and your defense just gets run through, not necessarily on the ground, although they did give up over 111 yards um, on the ground, they couldn't stop anything. The Chiefs did whatever they want whenever they wanted to San Francisco. Now, offensively, you know, and and we'll just take a step back. Now, that that has to change, obviously, right? They're going to look at film. They're going to figure out well, it'll be really quick to say what worked because not much. And they're going to talk about what what didn't work. Again, they're not going to see a team like Kansas City again all year in, unless some of these NFC teams start to become a little bit more explosive that they have to play. But now that there's, there's you know, ridiculous talk about, well, I guess defensive coordinator D'Amico Ryans isn't going to be a head coach this year because of this performance against the Chiefs. Again, knee-jerk, hot take, Sports talk take reaction. He had a great seat. He had a good seat, very good season last year. San Fran was in the top seven of, of basically all statistical categories defensively. 
he had one horrific game. The Falcon game wasn't even that bad when you look at the total yardage. They held they held him to under 290 or 280. They just could not get off the field on third downs. They could not stop the run when they needed to. Same thing here. They could not get off the field on third downs. They couldn't stop. And they were third and longs. It's not like the Chiefs were nickel and diming them down the field. They were getting big chunks, big plays. And maybe someone like an Emmanuel Mosley does matter there, and it's playing Jimmy Ward out of position. He was playing the slot corner because Diamador Lador was playing the outside corner in place of Emmanuel Mosley. That didn't work. Maybe there's help coming in in, in, in the coming days or weeks with um, Jason Verrett, cornerback uh, rehabbing off of an ACL injury. It's 2.15 right now, Eastern Standard Time. They have until end of day today, San Francisco does, to activate Verrett to the active roster. If not... He has to be put on injured reserve and he would be done for the year. I would think they would activate him. Um, even if he can't play this week against the Rams, I would still put him on the active roster. I mean, great. I have no idea what his, what his knee looks like, his practices, how sore he is, et cetera. But if he is close to going, sit him this week. Next week's the bye week. He'll get two more weeks of rest and hopefully coming out of the bye against the Chargers, he can hopefully lock down or at least semi-lock down that other cornerback spot outside, um, opposite of Emmanuel Mosley. Now let's change. Let's turn over to the offense. Chiefs scored six off six times offensively. The Niners scored five. Unfortunately, three of those were field goals. Now yardage wise, they put up 444 yards. That's the most yardage they've put up all season. Their previous high was last uh, two weeks ago against Carolina. Now, some of that was garbage yards. There might have been 40 or so garbage yards that Brock Purdy got when he came in on the very last drive of the game. He was intercepted um, in the end zone. But still, let's just say a 400-yard output, basically by Jimmy Garoppolo and the running backs. Not bad. Now, all Niner fans, I think, are are, are kind of spoiled when you're going back to like the, the early 2000s with Jeff Garcia Steve Young into the late 90s, mid-90s, Joe Montana, et cetera, where the, the offense was explosive more often than not, where you were getting 400 yards of offense, not every week, but regularly. It does not seem to be the case with this Kyle Shanahan offense. And if you are a run-heavy offense, you are not going to put up those yards consistently. Now, you're going to have games where the running game is going to be clicking to maybe the tune of 150, which opens up the passing game and and Jimmy will probably throw for 250 plus, but this is not a high yardage offense and th therefore also not a high point scoring offense right now. They have the weapons between Debo, Ayuk, Juwan Jennings as a big slot, George Kittle, now Christian McCaffrey, Jeff Wilson, Elijah Mitchell when he gets healthy. There's been some aggravation uh, between Kittle last week and Brandon Ayuk this week saying we have too many game-changing type players to not put up more than 23 points. Well, they put up more points this week than they did against them in the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl is 20 points. This was 23. So silver linings, right? But they do, I mean, offensively still though, the, the game was in doubt into the third quarter. But even throughout those three quarters, there was really only... They only carry the ball 21 times as a team. Wilson had seven. McCaffrey had eight. Uh, I don't know if the the mindset was let's we got to run with KC or slow KC down. I think at the time once you saw that the defense couldn't stop Kansas City, I don't know if the mentality from Shanahan should have been shootout. Now you need points to keep pace with them, but you can still get points 
methodically moving down the field and then limit the number of opportunities the Chiefs get to just roll down the field as if your offense, your defense isn't even there. But only 21 carries. Would they have won if they ran the ball 30, 35 times? Probably not. Could it have been closer? Possibly. But one of the things that they, they have not been doing since Kyle Shanahan's been here, they have been in the bottom half of the league running running backs, uh, drawing up screens to the running back, screen passes to the running back. Kyle was asked this a few days ago, and he says that, you know, more will be need to be drawn up now that McCaffrey's on the team. To which I say, really? Like, you're going to wait now until you get Christian McCaffrey to run uh, running back screens more effectively? I still find it amazing that, you know, for people in their, for adults in their mid twenties, early mid to late twenties that are running backs in the NFL, some running backs are not considered third down backs because they can't quote unquote catch the ball. Now these are, these are men and young adults that have been playing football their whole life and they can't catch a football. And we're not asking you to catch a 50 yard bomb down the sidelines. We're asking you to be like seven yards away from the quarterback or less catch a lollipop throw and then run with it. I don't care, you know, whoever the running backs have been, um, Raheem Mostert, Matt Breida, Jeff Wilson, Elijah Mitchell, Tevin Coleman, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some, Jermichael Hasty. These running backs, I think, are competent enough, have good enough hands and are shifty enough to have made the screen game more of a factor the past five years than it has been. Bottom half of the league. And in three of those seasons they were ranked 21st or worse. That's unacceptable because one, it's cheap yards for your quarterback. It's actually a higher, a more higher percentage pass than a wide receiver screen because you're throwing the, the ball farther horizontally across the field and those are plays that corners can kind of jump. At least if a screen, if it's called co correctly, just like Kansas City did to San Francisco, that defensive line is going to be rushing the quarterback because you're going to get a free release. The offensive linemen are going to, be ready to block downfield for that running back. So you more or less have a clean throw. Not sure why it's not part of the offense. It should be part of the offense moving forward with McCaffrey, but it should remain part of the offense when McCaffrey's not on the field. So you're not tipping your hand and, and showing defenses. Oh, McCaffrey's in either. He's going to get a handoff or they're going to run a screen or something out of the backfield for him. McCaffrey still should come in as a decoy. Of course, but, but again, the versatility, you can't tell me that they that Kyle has not had running backs on the roster that can effectively run screen passes. I, I just don't believe it. Now let's get to, to some of Jimmy's miscues. The interception after the muffed punt when it was 14-13, a little before halftime, was unforgivable. Um, Jimmy dropped back. It was a third down. It was a zero blitz, meaning everybody was man-to-man. He throws the ball up. He did not put nearly enough on it to get it to Kittle, who was running in a, a deep out in the end zone, gets intercepted at the goal line, returned to about the seven. Now, Jimmy's just got to eat the ball. You either throw it away or you take the sack. You do not give up the opportunity for points on that possession. Now, people have rewatched that. I rewatched the game again, um, have rewatched that play and said, well, you had... He had Jeff Wilson coming out of the backfield on his right side. He kind of ran what they call a Texas route, which is he runs out to the right and then slants back into the middle of the field. Jeff Wilson wasn't even into his cut yet by the time Jimmy was backpedaling and going to go down and, and he was releasing the ball. He did not have time to see it. 
Should he have thrown it away, just thrown it out of the back of the end zone, thrown it at a running back or receiver's feet? Absolutely. You cannot make that throw. And unfortunately, I think the throw that he made to Ray McLeod earlier in the game, where he was kind of, he wasn't really getting sacked, but fading away, and he put up, which it looked like a wounded duck that Ray Ray McLeod saw, and he was able to come around his defender and catch it for the touchdown. I wonder if that gave Jimmy confidence or, I don't know, some sort of emotional equivalent that he thought that he could make that throw. Bad, bad decision. Did not let up, led, did not cause the Chiefs to get any points. The Chiefs went down the field. Bucker wound up missing a field goal. It remained 14 to 13 at halftime, but that was a great opportunity for at least three, at least to go into halftime up 16 to 14. Now, later on in the fourth quarter with San Francisco down 35 to 23, what didn't bother me was in a way. So let me just preface this in a way, Jimmy getting sacked in the end zone. He was trying to make something happen. They were backed up to their own five. Trent Williams got beat badly by Frank Clark on Jimmy's left-hand side. Jimmy's rolling out. Should have gotten rid of it. Even just throw the ball away. Took the sack. Now, here's why it doesn't bother me that much. The game was a 12-point game, 35-23. to If San Francisco punts there, Mitch Wisnowski's punting from the back of his end zone. The Chiefs are probably going to get the ball in 49er territory, at, mid, at midfield, at the best. San Francisco special teams, even though the, a new coach was brought in to revamp it, is equally as bad this year as it was last year. So in my mind, I'm like, well, it's it, it would be 35-23. The Chiefs are going to have the ball inside the 50, and they're just a couple plays away from scoring. At least with the safety, it made it 37-23, but still a two-score game. 37-23 is a two-touchdown game. 35-23 is a two-touchdown game. The math did not change at all in terms of number of possessions San Francisco needed to tie the game. What did bother me was on that preceding kickoff when the Chiefs made it 35-23, to Ray-Ray McLeod takes the ball out of the midpoint of his end zone, which I was watching the game with my son. I'm just saying, kneel, 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 didn't kneel. Got out past the 27. Okay, good for him. Except backup running back Ty Davis-Price got called for holding at the 10. Brought the ball back to the 5. That's where they started the drive and really didn't go anywhere with it. Specialty, unless you unless the ball is out of the end zone, Ray-Ray McLeod, just kneel. I mean, there's been far too many times where you take the ball out, you don't even get to the 20. I don't think they're going to return a kick. I'm just going out on a limb. They're not returning a kick this year. I would rather see a kneel down and getting the ball to 25 versus a run that doesn't get you to the 20, or worse, a fumble, because that's happened a couple times this year as well. So another stat about Kyle uh, went down, either at the half or going to the fourth quarter. So since Kyle Shanahan has taken over in 2017, the 49ers are 7-30 and 30 when they are down at the half. And a different stat with a different point um, target. They are 1-30 when down by three or more points going into the fourth quarter. Now, I, I know that's that's terrible. There are three other coaches that are in the vicinity of that horrible record when going into the fourth quarter and down by three or more points. The records are not as bad as Kyle's, but they're darn close. Sean McVay, John Harbaugh, and Bill Belichick. 
I would say Kyle Shanahan is a pretty good head coach. And I know people, there might be people that are listening now that are saying, oh, fire him, hire D'Amico Ryans instead. Kyle's got to go get Sean Payton. If Kyle Shanahan gets fired tomorrow, he has a job the next day. He will be a, a hotly sought after coaching candidate. So unless you can guarantee you can do better than him, he's going to be here. Plus, his fate is going to be tied to Trey Lance. And of course, we have not seen Trey Lance yet. And hopefully he makes a full recovery and is able to play next year. So, so Kyle's not going anywhere. But Kyle's teams do not play well after the half when they're down. And they certainly don't play well. I mean, let's go back. They play like shit after halftime. And they play like stinkier shit when they're down by three or more points at the end of the third quarter. Penalties, another bad penalty game for San Francisco, 10 for 80 yards. San Francisco this year is the fifth most penalized team in the league. Tough to sustain drives that way, tough to stop offenses when you're getting quote-unquote timely holding calls, pass interference, offside, something on a third down that gives the offense a first down. Now the Chiefs, weren't great on the penalty front this game. They had eight for 84 yards, but it didn't stop them just because, again, when you have one of the top two players or quarterbacks in the league and Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy, an opportunistic defense, they just, this is the Chiefs' best game of the year. They just exploded on San Francisco. Um, penalties aren't going to hurt you when you're clicking in all their phases. San Francisco sometimes has to play a perfect and clean game across the board to beat good teams. And sometimes they need to do that to beat average or bad teams. So we talk special teams. Uh, we talk penalties, special teams for as much as they brought in Oren Burks at linebacker, George Odom at safety, Ray Ray McLeod as a kick returner, specifically for special teams. Ray Ray McLeod is averaging more than one full yard less per return than the 49ers did last year. They're allowing big returns. They're getting penalties at bad, at bad moments, the special teams has not improved. And I'm just going to read a quote um, based on someone, I don't know if it was from the Press Democrat or, or, or what the periodical was, but went out and listed you know, some of the things that's wrong with this team right now. And, and, and they're, they're three and four. You are what your record says you are. And the article ended like this. So in summation, San Francisco struggles to get off the field on third down, drops a lot of passes, aren't good on special teams, and commit a high number of turnovers and penalties. But let's just blame it all on Jimmy Garoppolo. Is Jimmy Garoppolo part of the problem? Yes. Is he going to ultimately be the solution for this team? Probably not, but there are bigger fish to fry than Jimmy. Jimmy was not the reason they lost this game. The defense was. If you think Jimmy, or Kyle for that matter, can muster up enough creativity, accuracy, um, deep shots downfield, open passes to overcome their defense letting up 42, it's not going to happen. This team is not built that way. I don't even think with Trey Lance, the team would be able to overcome an offense that is just clicking on all cylinders and a defense that can't forget stop them, then even slow them down. I mean, maybe San Francisco has a, a possibility of winning this game if they scored, they let up 37, 35, or 28. And yes, that missed touchdown. I know you always say, like, you, you can't go back in time and change something and, and say that the outcome's going to be exactly the same. But if Jimmy doesn't throw that 
interception and they wind up kicking a field goal and it's 16 to 14 or score a touchdown and it's 20 to 13, excuse me, 16 to 14 or 20 to 13. Do you think San Francisco really wins that game? If they score a touchdown and it's 44 to 30, do you feel that much better about that whole experience you watched on Sunday just because Jimmy didn't throw an interception? I don't think that psychologically changes anything the Chiefs are going to do. I don't think that pumps the defense up anymore that they're going to have less breakdowns in coverage and not getting pressure on, on Mahomes. The Chiefs are a better team. Now, are they a 21-point better team, 21 more points better than San Francisco? I don't think so. I think it's just you caught a team on its one of its best days. They're 10 points, 14 points better than San Francisco. I, I don't think they're 21 points, even though that was the final score. Uh, I lowballed it. I said 27 to 20 last week. San Francisco actually outpaced my prediction of 20, 20 points. They scored 23. And I did think that they could potentially hold the Chiefs under 30. Shame on me. Now let's get to the Rams game this week. Very important game in the NFC West and for San Francisco's playoff chances altogether. This is a game that San Francisco won earlier in the year on Monday night. They beat the Rams 24-9. That game, they only had 17 offensive points. Remember Talanoa Hufunga returned an interception for a touchdown. The Rams are getting healthier. Uh, in some areas, they're getting wide receiver Van Jefferson back and cornerback Troy Hill for this game. Allen Robinson seems to have developed a little bit more of a rapport with Matthew Stafford. At least uh, they were on a bye this week, but their previous game against the Panthers when Allen and when Robinson went five for 63 and a touchdown. The Rams, you know, again, are going to look to take away the run. Maybe we'll see more of that five man line against San Francisco and McVay is another one of those, you know, young offensive geniuses, and he's going to look at what the Chiefs did to negate San Francisco's aggressiveness, and we may see some jet sweeps from, uh, whether it's Cooper Cup or Allen Robinson uh, or Van Jefferson. We may see a running back uh, be used in the way that that Hartman was, at least in terms of of um, short passes or the running game. Um the NFL is a copycat league. We just we may see more of what the Chiefs did last week. McCaffrey's going to get more involved. It's going to be a full week with the playbook. Does that mean he knows everything? Of course not, but he'll know more this week than he did last week and be available more. Kyle Juszczyk at, at uh, fullback, he's unavailable, broke a finger. Shanahan said that he should be returning after the bye. Eric Armstead is a maybe. I'll probably just put him down as a no because anytime the team says that, the player doesn't play and Jason Verrett would be a pleasant surprise. Again, I think he will be activated. He will be put on the roster, but he will not play this week. I think they want to give him at least another week or two to rest and be ready for the run that they're going to have to make after the bye. So now my questions are, can Kyle sustain his offense beyond the first quarter or beyond the first half? I don't know. Let's, let's see. Can he now, can he deploy, and this goes hand in hand with the first question, can he deploy all of his weapons most effectively? And he has another one to consider now, and it's McCaffrey. McCaffrey's going to get involved running the ball. He's going to get involved in the passing game. That takes a little bit of the load off of Debo in terms of the run, but between Debo and Ayuk and Kittle and Jawan Jennings, Jeff Wilson, um, Christian McCaffrey, if Dwelly's going to play more because without check at fullback, Kyle Shanahan has said that they've trained their tight end. So whether it's Dwelly or Werner, they may be lining up in fullback to help lead block for whoever the running back is going to be. 
Can the D step up? Can they continue to stop the run? The Rams have not been running the ball well, but the last game they played, they did at least make a concerted effort to run the ball more than 25 times. And can they can they either limit Cooper Cup or can they just say, all right, Cup, you get yours. We're just going to control and limit everybody else. And that includes Tyler Higby. It's going to include, has to include Robinson and it has to include uh, Van Jefferson coming back. All those things being said, I think this is a game that San Francisco wins 24 to 20. I'm not saying they're going to win this game because they have to. The Rams are a good matchup for them. McCaffrey, another week, another uh, week into the offense. I think Kyle is going to dial something up that's going to play to his, his players' strengths a little bit more. I think D'Amico Ryan can't possibly call a worse game or experience. Maybe they weren't all calls, but experience a worse game than he did against the Chiefs. The Rams are not the Chiefs. They're not even close to it. I think this is a game that is going to be relatively close. I don't think San Francisco goes in there and blows the doors off, nor do I think the Rams, if they win, they win more by more than a touchdown. But this is a game that is crucial to both teams. Some would say more so to the Rams because the Rams already lost to San Francisco and evening up the head-to-head matchup would be big for them regarding tiebreakers. But at the same time, winning two against the Rams, even though the Seahawks are atop the West, winning both against the Rams just gives them a full tiebreaker and a full two-game lead, essentially a two-game lead on the Rams when it comes to battling for the division. Because in the end, I still think it's going to be Los Angeles and San Francisco. I think Seattle, although they're playing well and very commendable, will ultimately fade. But stick around. That concludes the 49er portion of the podcast. We will get to the plus section and a lot of great topics coming up. It's plus time. All right, we are back. And I just wanted to touch upon a couple games from this past NFL weekend that have some potential playoff implications for for San Francisco and just to show everyone that the the sky is not falling. So first game between Green Bay and Washington, a game that the Commanders won 23 to 21. Green Bay was pretty much in control this game in the first half. They were up 14 to 3. They wound up returning an interception for a touchdown to go up 14 to 3. Then the wheels just fell off in the second half. Green Bay looks worse than their 3 and 4 record. Look at the quick stats. Washington won in yards, 364 to 232. Each team had a turnover. Washington had the edge in first downs, 22 to 16, and a whopping 14 more minutes time of possession for Washington over the Packers. Running the ball, this is something that was that's been a staple of Matt LaFleur's offense, especially having Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. Green Bay ran the ball 12 times for 38 yards. This was not in any way blowout at all even when Washington took the lead to run the ball 12 times is appalling Washington conversely 38 rushes for 166 yards Rodgers threw for 194 yards and two touchdowns and Heineke threw for two touchdowns and an interception the Packers are um three and four and they're looking up at the Vikings who are five and one the Vikings have had a bye in the NFC North so the Packers need to turn this around to really get back on track and challenge Minnesota. Minnesota beat them week one. So they at least now have a tiebreaker. And if they can beat them again in Lambeau field, that could really put the Packers behind the, the um, eight ball for a playoff spot. And green Bay has to go to Buffalo this week. Does anybody see the Packers winning that game? I, I don't. 
So San Francisco can maybe fans can look to Green Bay for solace. They'll turn it around at some point, but also they're three and four and might not be much of a threat from a wild card perspective. The other team, the Buccaneers, went to Carolina and got stomped 21 to three. Overall, the stats of the game were somewhat even. Brady went went for 290 yards, should have had at least 50 more. Mike Evans dropped a wide open touchdown pass. P.J. Walker for the Panthers bounced back, had a nice game, 177 yards and two touchdowns. And again, running the ball. So Carolina doesn't seem like they're missing McCaffrey, at least for one game. They ran it 27 times for 173 yards and a touchdown. And Tampa Bay, again, just either can't run the ball or just doesn't commit to it, ran it 16 times for 46 yards. The game didn't get away from Tampa Bay early. They could have stuck with the run a little bit more than they did. But they're they're relying on Brady and he's not letting them down. They're just they just did not get into the end zone this week. And you know, Tampa Bay is another three and four team, and they're a team that's like San Francisco. <laughs> well, they're t- Tampa Bay's tied for the lead in the NFC South with the Atlanta Falcons. They're both three and four. Um, looking at at the, the divisions now and playoff standings, the the NFC East, if things progress, are probably going to get two wild cards in the Eagles are looking really good. Let's just say they win that division. The Giants are 6-1. and one, The Cowboys are 5-2. and two. two wild cards may come out of that division. That means there's only one wild card left. The Vikings have a two-and-a-half game lead on the Packers right now. Minnesota's 5-1. and one. Green Bay's 3-4. and four. The Bears are 3-4. and four. And in the South, the Buccaneers and Falcons are 3-4. and four. Tampa owns the head-to-head tiebreaker. And in the West, right now it's a surprising Seattle Seahawks at 4-3. and three. Everybody else is... Well, I'm sorry, the Rams are 3-3 three and three and the Niners and Cardinals are three and four San Francisco, you know, they need to win most of their division. In addition to other games, they need to win most of their divisional games. If they can go four and two in the division, if they could beat the Rams again, and then let's say split with Arizona, say they lose to Seattle, lose to Arizona again, four and two. That's, that's a strong divisional record. Five and one would be better, but uh, let's say, you know, let's at least start low four and two. Um, everything's in front of them right now. You know, teams like Chicago and Atlanta that they lost to that are also three and four, they have the tiebreaker on San Francisco. So let's, if all of those teams finish up at nine and eight, let's say San Francisco's not going to get in because Chicago and Atlanta beat them. The only way I see San Francisco getting into the playoffs, I mean, if they get hot and they get 10 wins, but Seattle or the Rams somehow, or even Arizona gets 11 wins, Maybe they can get in as a 10, 10 win wildcard team, but their best chance is to win the West. And it starts this week against Los Angeles to get back to four and four before the bye. And they have nine games after the bye, six of which are at home. So things are lining up relatively well for San Francisco. And their, their trip to Arizona is actually a trip to Mexico. So it's not a true home game for Arizona. That's a game where there's going to be more 49er fans in the, in the crowd than Cardinals fans. So I, so they're getting some breaks when it comes to the schedule in the second half of the year, they just need to take advantage of it. They can't afford to drop really any more winnable games, which is why just losing, losing to either Atlanta or Chicago or Denver, may come back to bite them at the end of the year, but you can't go back in time. Just moving forward, you know, win your West games as many as you can starting this week and try to take care of as many other teams that's on your schedule. And like anything else, you just need a little bit of help moving forward. Now, from 
NFL standings and playoff standings. Let's move to some TV and movies before we get back to the NFL and make our week eight picks. Um, but this past week was the season finale of House of the Dragon, and I thought a very strong season overall. Uh, what winds up happening in the finale, for those of you that have not watched, might want to skip ahead. So the queen's son, Aegon, was crowned king in front of everyone in the episode before. Rhaenyra hears that her father, the king, has died um, from Princess Rhaenys, uh, who takes her dragon to where Rhaenyra and Daemon and others are just as a courtesy to let her know. And what we wind up seeing early in the episode is a knight defects from King's Landing and brings a crown and presents it to Rhaenyra because the knight believes in Rhaenyra as the true queen um, of the realm. Now, Rhaenyra... As many, you know, character faults, you know, as as she may have, um, I think she is of strong principle in terms of what she vowed to her father. And that was she would not let the realm fall apart. She knew it was going to be and her father knew it was going to be an uphill battle for the kingdoms and the realm to accept a queen instead of a king. So she once... It, she understands that this there's the potential to go to war to really declare a true sovereign in the land. Her ego, her rationale will not let that happen. Unlike her uncle slash husband, Damon, who is just chomping at the bit to go to war. And one of his reasons for that is he's, he starts counting dragons and saying that they have significantly more dragons numerically um, than the occupants of King La King's Landing currently. But Rhaenyra quickly reminds him that, you know, when dragons go to war, everything burns. So she's still, still midway through this episode using a level head. And strategically, she wants to find out who her allies are. There were houses and political powers that bent the knee to her when, she, you know, 10 years ago, when she was still in her, I would say, I guess, late teens, early 20s, when her father declared her to be um, queen after he passes. But things have changed now. But she wants to know for sure, such as how Stark and Winterfell and others, she, she needs to know where she stands. She even said, she's, I'm not going to send people to, to war and die if I don't know where I stand and if I'm not, you know, great, if I'm greatly outnumbered. To help expedite this, she winds up sending... Um, two of her sons to deliver messages to potential allies and her younger son, Luke goes to deliver a message. And she, he sees that his uncle, uh, Amond is there. Luke leaves. Amond taunts him, wants to kill him. Um, he's escorted out. Luke leaves to return home. And Amond gets on his much bigger dragon and starts chasing Luke and taunting him. Eventually, both riders lose control of their dragons. Luke's dragon um, winds up coming at Amond and the much larger dragon and sprays fire in that dragon's face. Now, that much larger dragon did not like that at all. Swoops around and winds up biting the dragon in half, kill instantly killing the dragon and Luke. Um, that's something that Amond did not want to happen. The Luke, the look, <laughs> the look on his face for what he did to Luke 
was one of shock, but it's something that he's going to have to lie about. Otherwise, he's going to seem weak and not worthy of the dragon that he inherited. So I'm sure when season two starts, maybe he will be behind the scenes a conflicted character. But going back to King's Landing, I'd imagine that he's going to tell his mother, the queen, and his brother, the king, that he struck the first blow and killed his nephew, which is essentially going to lead those families or that extended family to war. And it ends on... um, which was just directed a, a beautiful scene. There was no voiceover. It was just music. It's Damon getting the word of um, Rhaenyra's son dying. And they Damon is next to Rhaenyra. They have their backs turned to the camera. You can see how hard Rhaenyra is emotionally hit. And it just ends on her turning her face to the camera. Um, and you, we just see her broken and enraged. And it just cuts to black. And, and you know that... Now they're going to war. Any hope for peace or any other strategic discussions or maneuverings done now. Um, losing a child you know, has done that to Rhaenyra. I thought, you know, looking back at, at the season, I knew that there was going to be time jumps going into it as you went from actress Millie Alcott to Emma Darcy as Rhaenyra and even um, who winds up playing the queen. That You know, there was, there was going to be time jumps Uh, There was multiple time jumps. Now everybody is aged up to where they need to be, I think, moving forward. It's not to say that there might not be another small time jump for this series, which is estimated to go four seasons in length. But Emma Darcy, who's playing Princess slash Queen Rhaenyra, and Matt Smith as Damon were just absolutely fantastic. All around and extremely well-produced, directed, and acted uh, season of television and series. It, it's a worthy successor to the Game of Thrones name, especially a, a much more than worthy successor to the last two seasons of Game of Thrones. It's just unfortunate that I don't think we're getting a new season until 2024. But moving from one large and established IP to another, it was announced a few days ago that there will be a new Star Wars movie coming out. Now, probably not until December of 2025, so we're more than three years away, because that is the opening that Lucasfilm has in its schedule. For whatever that's worth, things could move. It was announced that it's going to be helmed by Damon Lindelof, um, who was one of the creative people behind Lost. The Leftovers, which I heard was a really good show on HBO, um, and he was the mastermind behind The Watchmen on HBO, which was a sequel to the highly acclaimed comic book slash graphic novel series from DC, which I enjoyed as well. It's speculated that it will take place after the rise of Skywalker, so after the last episodic film, but it will not be considered episode 10. So how far in the future after Rise of Skywalker remains to be seen, but there is the possibility that characters from the sequel trilogy, whether it's Ray, Finn, Poe, whomever else, could potentially be in this movie. Now, all of this needs to be taken with a grain of salt. As we've talked about earlier, there was other movies that have been announced or even speculated, and they never came to fruition. The most recent one, Rogue Squadron, supposed to be written and directed by Patty Jenkins, announced at the end of 2020 with a big trailer reveal, or not a trailer reveal, but just a video clip of her standing in front of, it looked like a life-size X-Wing fighter. That movie is a, has been taken off the schedule and essentially canceled. The Game of Thrones showrunners were supposed to get their own Star Wars movie or potentially a trilogy. 
That is done. They're moving on to things for Netflix. Ryan Johnson, the writer and director of Episode 8, The Last Jedi, still the potential of him getting a, a, his own trilogy, but nowhere close to happening. And Taiki Waititi, again, of the last two uh, Thor movies and has directed, I believe, two episodes of the TV show The Mandalorian, is apparently working on his own standalone Star Wars movie. Things can change, things can move around, so it was great this announcement was made, but an announcement, especially as it pertains to Star Wars movies, guarantees nothing. But still cautiously optimistic and excited about what this could potentially be. Now, again, I, I've said before, and I will certainly have a podcast in the future that deals with Star Wars and books and maybe games and the future of Star Wars, its past, etc. We're not quite there yet, but one thing I can say is I've read an ungodly amount of Star Wars books in my life, and I'm continuing to either read them or listening to audiobooks. There are a lot of creative ideas out there, a lot of ways that they can craft a story, a lot of ways they can craft a story, mainly kind of in the past. There's a time period, the Old Republic, which is really thousands of years before Luke Skywalker or Anakin Skywalker is even born. So I don't. they're not going that route, it looks like, with this new movie, so it'll be something fresh and on the farther in the future, obviously, timeline of, of the Star Wars canon. But my only advice would be make a movie geared to adults. Star Wars has historically, and for the most part, been an intellectual property that caters to children or has a more juvenile feel than an adult feel. I think the sequel trilogies did a bit better job of aging up the story, the acting, the stakes, it, you know, it just was not this, it was not the sequel trilogy I would have told or George Lucas would have told. I mean, granted, who am I? But I've read enough books of what's happened after Return of the Jedi that they could have went a number of different ways that would have been much better than what we got. But if you make it for, even if you make it for the diehard Star Wars people, and a lot of those people are, are older, right? Like in their, say, 30s, 40s, 50s, if you make it for them, the kids will come. The kids will join them because these people are parents now, maybe even grandparents, and it'll still appeal to kids. And Disney does not have to look outside of its creative house than to look at what they did with all the Marvel movies. People, I think, right off the bat would say comic book movies are for kids, but they're not kiddie movies. They're not made in a juvenile way. They don't pander to a younger audience. And I think... A lot of the, the best Marvel movies have a good amount of violence. Sometimes there's some, I don't want to say gore, but there's blood happening. The last Spider-Man movie, Endgame, uh, Infinity War, the Captain America movies, Winter Soldier. That was a very adult-oriented... It's essentially an action film that has superheroes in it that parents, adults like, and kids love. That's the formula. You know, I mean, not the fact that it just has to be adult. Worry about the story. Don't worry about who your demographic is. Worry about telling a good story. And if it happens to be a little bit more mature, all the better. Kids don't mind that. You know, we can insult like millennials and kids for a lot of things. Screen time, avocado toast, you know, being on uh, internet, Facebook, uh, Instagram a ton. But they will go to see quality. They don't need, we don't need to insult them by bringing down the quality of a movie or dialogue or special effects or story 
just because it's Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars was originally meant to be campy, like the Flash Gordon serial movies that George Lucas grew up on, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And I think the best example, too, is the most, to me, I don't want to say successful, but the most refreshing things that Star Wars have done recently have been the most adult, whether it was the Rogue One movie, the Mandalorian TV series, and yes, it has the cute baby Yoda Grogu in it, but it's still an adult series compared to others that have put out. And most recently, the series that is currently going on now, and if you haven't watched it, I recommend you do Andor, which is the prequel to Rogue One, the Rogue One movie, but it's a spy espionage action thriller. It doesn't move as quickly as some of the other series, but I love it. And again, I'm not going to say just, you know, whatever I like, you you should make Disney and Lucasfilm. But I do know I'm a pretty goddamn good barometer of when you, when I see a trailer or a commercial for a movie, seeing that if that's going to be a good movie, if it's going to make money, if it's going to be crap, it's going to bomb. I, I'm here to hire Lucasfilm and Disney. Run all your ideas by me. I will give you the thumbs up, sideways or down on what you should produce. I won't even charge you just because I, I that badly want to watch something adult and good and creative because it feels like it's been a while for for star wars but there is a new movie coming let the speculation begin we're more than three years away i know i'll be following it i don't want to say daily but probably a couple times a week just going on different message boards and blogs and reading what people are thinking it's going to be because it's just fun and it generally doesn't wind up being that way but it it, and it lends to for good reading and some good conversing with with folks on these boards so that concludes the plus section minus week eight NFL picks, which we are going to get into right now. Now, last week I had a nine and five record, which brings my overall record to 66 wins, 39 losses and one tie. And again, hopefully the above 500 trend continues. So our Thursday night game on Amazon. Uh, oops, I'm on the wrong week. Just give me a second. Let's go to week eight instead. So our Thursday night game, again, it is on Amazon. I did get that right. Baltimore at Tampa Bay. I can't imagine, I shouldn't say this, that, that I can't imagine Tampa Bay looking bad three weeks in a row. That can certainly happen. Baltimore's defense is not great. Tampa Bay's defense ha has played better, but they have a pretty stout defense generally. I wonder if this is a game where Tampa Bay can get the running game on track. I wonder if this is a game where Julio Jones at wide receiver can get on the field for the Buccaneers. This feels much more must-win for Tampa and Tom Brady, so I will take the Bucks. Denver at Jacksonville, you know, thank you, NFL and ESPN Plus, for putting this on ESPN Plus. I do not have ESPN Plus. I cannot possibly watch this game or be tempted to even flip through this game, which is great because it's the Broncos and the Jag well, Jaguars are kind of exciting, but the Broncos are an absolute mess, and they make every game they're in a complete disaster. Give me Jacksonville, but I just don't care either way. Carolina at Atlanta. Panthers off of a, a press an impressive win over the Buccaneers this past weekend. Um, Atlanta, I think, at home with that ground game. They played Cincinnati relatively well for a half and then just wound up losing, you know, 35-17 overall. They just couldn't hang with them. But I think they'll get that ground game going again. And I think overall just have more offensive variability and weapons than the Panthers do. Chicago at Dallas. Chicago, very impressive win at New England on Monday night. Dallas struggled with, with the Lions for about three quarters, but then did lengthen the lead in their victory. 
Uh, Dallas has the better defense. Dallas also has the better offense, um, although at the, by the looks of it, maybe not by much. Give me the Cowboys. Miami at Detroit. You know, this could be another one of those track meet type of games. I think Miami's defense can give Detroit some problems, especially the pressure that they can generate and put on Jared Goff. Tua looked good um, last week, so I will take the Dolphins. Arizona at Minnesota. Uh, pulling for the Vikings, let them run away with the NFC North and a loss against uh, a win over the, the Cardinals will only help San Francisco's um, plight to win the NFC West. DeAndre Hopkins bat is back with Arizona. Um, that should not be understated. And I think that is going to help. But I think Minnesota, at least right now, and it's not a primetime game because Kirk Cousins seems to wilt during those. It's a one o'clock game. I will take the Vikings. The Raiders at the Saints. This game, to me, I think is a toss-up. If it was in Las Vegas, I would take the Raiders. Uh, I'm leaning towards New Orleans. Even though they played a high-scoring game um, against Arizona, they they did come back to make it a game. Perhaps Jameis Winston will be back. I think they can find a ways to take um, the, the passing game away, at least Devontae Adams, away from Derek Carr. I'm still not sure if... Uh, their tight end for the Raiders is going to wind up playing. He's missed um, the past couple weeks, so I will take the Saints. New England at the Jets. Can't believe I'm going to say this. Give me the give me the Jets. They're they're looking good. They did wind up losing an offensive lineman and a running back, Brees Hall, for the year, but they did enough to win at Denver. New England's Bailey Zappi looks better than Mac Jones at quarterback. It's not saying that much. I don't know if it really matters who they put out there. I could see this being a game where people get on the Jets bandwagon and they crap the bed because the historic Jets have done that. But I think they have enough to beat New England. And our last one o'clock game, Pittsburgh at Philadelphia. I think Pittsburgh had a nice showing um, this past week, but I think Philadelphia just looks too strong at this point. They'll get the win. Our four o'clock game start with Tennessee at Houston. Now, this is a game that Houston can can viably win. I think this will be a low-scoring-ish, ugly game, and I think Tennessee does enough. Washington at Indianapolis, good for Taylor Heineke. Uh, not to say that Carson Wentz was the problem, but Taylor Heineke has played some good quarterbacking, whether in relief or a relief of a quarterback or getting starts on his own. Indianapolis is benching Matt Ryan. For the rest of the year, it sounds like. So back up Sam Ellinger, who has not thrown a pass in the regular season, gets the start. I think they'll be very conservative to start out the game to make sure that Ellinger doesn't lose it for them. I'm still going to take Indianapolis. Uh, Washington looked a bit more feisty with Heineke and Brian Robinson at running back. They ran for over 150 yards against the Packers. Just going on a hunch, I'm going to take the Colts. I took San Francisco 24-20 over the Rams. New York at Seattle. Whoever loses this game, it's going to help San Francisco. And I, as much as I can't bring myself to root for the Giants, I am going to be. So Seattle comes back to four and four. But I think this is a game that Seattle at home wins. Their defense has been very opportunistic with either interceptions or fumble recoveries. And the defense has played better the past couple weeks. Seattle is always a, a difficult place to play. And I think now that they know that they have a team, at least currently with a winning, winning record, the crowd will be into it. And I think the environment... Um, the team, again, Geno Smith completing over 72% of his passes, very efficient. DK Metcalf is not playing. He has a knee injury, but I think um, running the ball, Kenneth Walker on the ground, I think Seattle does enough to win. Green Bay at Buffalo, there's no reason to feel good about Green Bay at all. The Bills will win this game rather handily. 
in Cincinnati at Cleveland. I think Joe Burrow is starting to get into a groove. Uh, almost threw for 500 yards against the Falcons, threw for over 320 in the first half. Uh, rivalry game, again, usually those are toss-up games, but I think Beng- uh, Burrow and the Bengals have a little bit more firepower than the Browns can handle, and the Chiefs and the Chargers are on a bye this week. So that concludes our podcast for this week. I want to thank everybody for listening. The World Series is going to start in a couple days, so the Astros and Phillies will be squaring off. First four or five games of the NBA and NHL seasons uh, are in full effect. And again, as always, college football on Saturday, the pros on Sunday, and the Niners, again, a must-win, a very important game against the Rams at 4 o'clock. So I hope you guys all have a great week, and we will talk soon. Take care.